When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 195, Arena. Today, it's Todd's favorite time of year when we read some poetry. (laughs) We'll discuss Lauren Shapiro's poetry collection, Arena, which was published in 2020 to rave reviews. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! As always, it's us. As always. For all the years that we've been here. There's actually been like one or two episodes where one of you isn't here. And I'm like, as sometimes, or for the first time. You know, we're probably due, by the way. I think it's been, well, it's been at least through an entire fucking pandemic. It's time to have Will Friedle back. I know. I was just thinking about that because I was just uh, discussing Mistborn with somebody. Ah. Um, and I remember that that was the book, that first fantasy book that he had us read, which was right. pretty good. I remember it was long, but um, And then he good. had us like, read yeah, that, uh, he had us read that terrible book. The Piers Anthony The Piers classic. Anthony book. Yeah, God. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he, no, I'm I'm curious at the state of like fantasy and and sci-fi right now. Like, I, I'd love to check in on where he's at because he just devours those books. You know, like, uh, you know, they're all 900 pages and 10 part series, and he's read them all. You got so. you got to think that Will has some post pandemic sci-fi book that we should all read. Like, he's got to yeah. have something. If, yeah, Will, if you're listening, and I know he's a big fan of the show, constantly listening. Um, as all of our closest friends do. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, he's sworn he's sworn off social media, so I'm I'm assuming he would still want to come back because he he he'll, he's he's still looking forward to doing conventions and stuff. So, but he's definitely he's checked off of Instagram and because uh, I recently put put a photo of the two of us that I found from when we were in in Boy Meets World together, like way back when we were 13 and 16. Oh gosh! And I couldn't tag him. I was like, oh right, he's 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 signed off. But he's much happier not being on social media like we yeah. all should be. Yeah. We all know that that's the right way. But <laughs> we all know that that's the healthy thing. We're yeah. just not there yet. Yeah, I mean. The addiction. I I suspect that my, um, that <laughs> me using next door and like neighborhood groups on Facebook to. Well, that ru- you should definitely kick. To, to run large scale social experiments and pranks yeah. is probably not the best of me. No, I know I'm extremely addicted, but I'm addicted to like nice things like leaving positive comments on people's photos. And you're like terrorizing your neighbors. And and yet, Julia, just today, just today, (laughs) you shit talked me on the Internet or was actually last night. You shit talked me on the Internet. We have been watching Mare of Easttown, Todd and I, and Todd predicted the ending a week ago. And I correctly and i just went onto his page and i believe my comment was i came over to here over here to see if you were being annoying about this and you didn't disappoint because <laughs> yeah. it had been, the finale believe- had been on for like 
half an hour by the time right. you were like, I got it right, and everybody <laughs> spoiler. I just can't believe Todd. I can't it. believe how you're omnipresent on every platform. Yeah. Like I I I I, I didn't you're on Instagram because I just recently got back onto Instagram and I'm like, Todd, put put all these photographs here. You're on Facebook, which I, I checked off of Facebook. I'm no longer on that. But then you also are on Twitter, you I mean, you're bouncing around a lot because you're to also mention posting uniquely right. in each place. Yeah, I, I well, not always. I, I often cross post the same content. Um, but, you know, part of it is like, well, right now I feel like I have a, a need to like be active because I have a book out. But I now have to be writing a book. So I suspect that that will tail off. Um, actually, I need to be writing two books, but that's another story. Did I tell you guys this? I don't know if I told you guys this. I don't know if I told the listeners this. Maybe it happened in between episodes. No, he told you us, told but us, I don't know if it was on air. Not everybody else. Oh, okay. Well, I so in addition to finishing the Gangsterland series, which I will be doing with a new book in um, 2023, I also sold another book called uh, Salt and Sea, which is going to be a crime novel set at the Salt and Sea in the 1960s. Amazing. Based on the character that we covered in yeah, in the based, short story yeah, on based this on the, the title story of the Low Desert. Um, so I'm really busy, and I just don't think I'll have enough time to talk shit on next door. I think you're gonna manage, but I'll <laughs> probably slide in around election time. <laughs> I'm just scared. Like, what are you doing on like LinkedIn? Oh, yeah. I don't have a LinkedIn. LinkedIn's for suckers. Okay. But look, okay. Here, Who let, actually want to work and like meet <laughs> each other in real office situations. Let me ask you a question. So you guys uh, are sitting at home and your neighborhood app buzzes and it's an alert. No, from yeah. Do not turn off all <laughs> notifications. That's rule number one. Yeah. You never have anything that buzzes or notifies you in your mm. life because otherwise you'll never get off. Right. So say I haven't done that yet and I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. And I get a notification from my neighborhood app that one of our neighbors is angry about the wind and wants to know, like, is the wind going to stop? We just moved here from Michigan. I might we might sell our house. This wind, I cannot manage it. Knowing that this person exists, you might be able to just say, Oh, this is a stupid person. I, I will not interact. Or if you have, say, bad fucking energy and a case of moral superiority, you might then respond two ways. One, have you spoken to the manager? And then two, <laughs> did you think the wind farm was a deep fake? <laughs> oh, my God. Todd, I just, how do you have the focus to care? Oh, I don't care. Okay. I don't care. Not in the least. Uh, but I find it amusing. And then if I get to share my amusement with my friends. Fair enough. Uh, then other people get joy from it as well. But as uh, the other person who lives in my home often says, and that person, of course, would be my lovely wife, Wendy. Like, don't, why don't you, like, get a different hobby? Yeah. <laughs> than, than talking you know, shit to strangers. <laughs> when I think about it, this is what you've been doing since the 90s. Because didn't you used to write Parade Magazine, like take I the did. letters into Parade Magazine and write essays mocking the people who wrote it? So this I is did. your thing. <laughs> Even before social media was a reality, you were taking people's uh -huh. public idiotic <laughs> pronouncements and mocking them. So this is just... 
It's just in your fabric. It's yeah. the fabric of your being, my I, friend. I actually caused a change in the publication parade magazine because <laughs> they had this whole section called Walter Scott's Personality Parade where they would pretend that they were getting letters from the public saying like, oh, where's Osama bin Laden? And Walter Scott would answer it, and he'd always be wrong about all this shit. But then I started like wondering like, who are these people that are writing these letters? And I would Google them, and of course they wouldn't exist. And I was like, "Oh, this is this is like this is weird." And then, I, and then, people that did exist that would write, I would mock them on the internet, and they'd be like, "That is not the letter that I wrote Parade Magazine." And then they'd send me the letter, and I'd be like, "This is really strange. Like, why would Parade Magazine do this?" And then all of a sudden, one day they just stopped doing that. But like, I did this for like five years or something. so wait a minute they were editing people's letters or... oh yeah yeah oh yeah that's that's annoying to yeah. give the answer they want to give to the letter yeah yeah yeah, yeah that would but, be my um, assumption it, I mean, it was <laughs> it was not a nice thing that i was doing to these people i recognize now um because you know i was being mean to them and they were just weird people who sent letters to parade magazine about their favorite celebrities i mean it would be like i heard writer strong killed bin laden any truth to that? And this guy would be like, well, it wasn't Ryder Strong, but we do know he's dead. And this was in like 2004, you know? <laughs> like, how the fuck does this guy know Bin Laden's dead? Because that's journalism. That's journalism for you. And that's Walter Scott's personality parade on, on parade. But, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, All right, let's, let's try and find a segue. I will, st- <laughs> I will stop doing that in honor of Memorial Day. <laughs> of which it is so in honor of memorial day uh, yeah. writer picked uh, a book about death <laughs> it's a it's it's i wouldn't say it's about death i i there's a lot going on in this book yes yeah, um all right well so it we're discussing uh lauren shapiro's arena um her her previous books are easy math uh which won a the Catherine a morton prize um, and then the chapbook Yo-Yo Logic. She also edited the New Census, an anthology of contemporary American poetry. And then she teaches at uh, she teaches English at Carnegie Mellon. And Arena is uh, the the latest collection. It came out last year from Cle- uh, Cleveland University Press. There, it's a series of short poems built around the concept and the image, literally and figuratively, because there's there's actually some black and white photographs in right. here of an arena. Um, so she keeps coming back to this, this, there's actually like four poems titled or titled arena or using the, the word arena in the title. Um, um, yeah, so I, I picked this book. This was, this was more of a random Google search, like best, best poetry collection of 2020. And I went through and this one just sounded really interesting. So mm-hmm. I hadn't read any of her work before I said, we should read this one. I just knew that it was a, a hit book from last year. Um, and I, I really liked it, but uh, you guys are going to get on me for picking a depressing book. No, no. I mean, we, we read plenty of depressing books here. I mean, this is a uniquely depressing book, um, mm. but that's not that's not a, a condemnation. You know, the interesting thing is, so uh, the form that she uses for the arena poems, I was reminded of uh, the duplex poems that we read in um, mm-hmm. Jericho Brown's. I don't know if she has created a new form with the arena poems. What, what's the form that these actually take? What, what would you call that? 
I wouldn't, I don't think it was really like, I don't think they're formalized in any way. I mean, it's interesting to include photographs the way that she does. Yeah. Um, and I'm yeah. sure there's some clever poetry terminology for what that is called. Like, you know, when alternating photos and, and or images and um, poetry, but no, I mean, I, I think it's more using the, 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 the uh, concept of arena, you know, like, because so much of this, this, this book is about spectacle and sharing, right sharing the spectacle of, uh, you know, of tragedy or trauma and how we witness awful things in our lives. Um, you know, I, I, if the, the narrative thread that keeps coming back is, is really her father's mental health. Mm-hmm. That sort of opens the book and keeps recurring. It seems her father either did commit suicide or at least attempted suicide multiple times. Right. And that's the sort of narrative entry point for this book. Um, and then I think, you know, for me, the arena just figures as this, uh, you know, site of spectacle where violent and awful things usually happen. And we have a crowd gathered to sort of cheer it on or uh, enjoy it or also relish in its awfulness, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we are doing when we're reading this book. Right. Um but it also, I think, speaks to social media, which we were discussing. I think mm-hmm. it speaks to, um, obviously, there's an easy Trump Trump era reading uh, in the arena images of these, you know, people burning things and celebrating the downfall of um, the country. Right. <laughs> and sort of, sort of relishing in, in their power, you know, because, I mean, she keeps using the arena to talk about how we are witnessing, you know, a decapitation, for instance, she references in one of the poems and... Or that there's like a party going on outside of the arena where people are like, you know, burning things and selling. And I, you know, I kept thinking about Trump rallies and, mm. and um, or just political gatherings in general, you know, in the sense that like we're in this moment of history where we, we, we want to see the truth of awful things happening, right, on television, whether that's people getting shot by cops or... Uh, people fighting in the street, you know, punching Nazis, whatever it is, like, I feel like we're in this era of spectacle. And it feels important for all of us to participate and also to witness. Um, so I feel like she's playing with a lot of that. That's what I took away from all the arena stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, think... go ahead, Julia. I think it's worth reading a few lines from the first arena poem. I mean, in general, this collection is unique in that it's these are extremely direct poems. I, I don't know how else to phrase it, but like this is not designed to make you like tear up slowly. This is like very hardcore um, staring in the face of these subjects. So uh, here are some lines that I really like. I'll just read the first arena poem. It's really short. To imagine your world encircled is to imagine it finite, a spectacle. The best place for a goring is the center of the storm where everything is still, like a microscope the doctors pour over, probing. When the crowd quiets, it's to see the decapitation or to just breathe in, not me. How insular, I mean lucky, to be sitting in the arena, to be outside the center. The show must go on and on. If you close your eyes, it goes on. Later, you could mention what you hear, how the only reason you know it's over is the sudden and incredibly loud cheers. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think it speaks to the strange thing about human beings, which is that we also go to watch other people in conflict. We yeah. find entertainment yeah. by watching other people have conflicts, mm-hmm. physical and emotional. That's weird. 
Like, what? Yeah. Like, dogs don't do that. Like, my Cocker Spaniel's not like, hey, I'm going to walk down the street and see if Barney's in a fight with the cat. You know, it's like, right. that doesn't ever happen. Right. Yeah, because I think what this poem's pointing out is, you know, we're not just witnessing it. We're reflecting on how we're not the one being gored or how we're not currently in the center of this thing. Um, right. And that's the thrill is it could be you, but it, it isn't you. I, I don't Until know about, it is. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I often will watch those videos of people like, like last night I watched a video of a drunk guy in La Quinta, which is the city that I live in, uh, in a golf cart after he just yelled at a bunch of people and was acting like an asshole, get in his golf cart and drive it directly into a tree and then fall out and land on his face. And I watched that video like 15 times and was like pausing it to look to see like, how does he fall like that? And then I realized, like, what am I doing? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously watching a person who's not in their right mind hurt yeah. themselves. But then by the same token, it's like, well, it's not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? That's yeah. great that no, it's not I me. I know. And I feel like, but I feel like we live in such an image conscious time. I mean, that's like, we're all encouraged to sort of live our lives like that. Right. right. Like, I have, to, I mean, I, I mean, you can take it all the way back to the, the, the decapitation videos of Al Qaeda, you right. know, like I, I remember like those things were put online and like people were actively choosing them or, you know, you could, I don't, I just, I, I basically like have to make a rule for myself. Like I don't, I try not to watch any of that shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, anything that's like, Oh my God, you have to see these people fighting in a store or this parking right. lot or, you know, this drunken brawl. Like, Oh God, no. Like, cause I always regret it. Mm-hmm. Like I click on it out of the, you know, that, that weird curiosity that we all have. And then it's, it's hard to look away, but yeah, I think it's, it, it's the whole world. Like basically I feel like the, the whole world has become an arena yeah. in so many ways. Um, well, because, because our entertainment is provided not through created narrative anymore. Right. You know, it's through our iPhones or, or whatever, or this thing that we're doing right now where we're talking about, you know, unscripted. Listeners, I regret to inform you, we don't we don't plan this. Um, <laughs> Which, <laughs> um, yeah. but it explains a lot. But yeah, but like there, I I also think that what this book is talking about and what you're talking about, writer, is that we have begun to find joy in holistic conflict, like mm-hmm. something that is unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, it it goes against everything that we've read or seen on TV and, and that sort of thing already. And this book, it, in a way, is like that because she's also she's repeating in her mind, or the speaker is at least repeating in her mind various times that her father has tried to kill himself. Um, you know, she'll say like the call came and then it came forever that her father had had tried to kill yes. himself. Mm-hmm. And it's you know this notion of this sort of the the cyclical nature of trauma that it doesn't it doesn't ever stop and then there's these arenas where you're going to see another person's trauma it's so it there's a there's a depth to this book um that speaks outside of the personal experience of the of the writer or the speaker in the poems but then there's also just super highly personal pieces of work like um this poem wedge um maybe i'll read this one I find the old bills, the ones printed on pink, final notice, living in a beautiful house we couldn't afford, with even a pool in a giant yard that required a riding mower, and living there as though we belonged, when you and mom visited, willing the baby to smile at you, 
willing him to crawl good-naturedly over your leg, to really enjoy the toy you brought, to ham it up in a baby way. I silently begged him to do something, just do something, but he was cranky as usual. He climbed out of your lap when I put him in. He threw a full-on tantrum while you looked vacantly at the wall. When I offered lasagna, Mom said, I hate lasagna. When I offered a glass of wine, you had to drive. I had to hold it together. What did any of it mean? Now we live in a cul-de-sac with all kinds of baby stuff. I couldn't talk to anyone. You didn't say a word. Then you spoke mechanically, the machine gears grinding in your brain. You pulled out your wallet and handed me a check. Like the the the, the frozen moments of domestic trauma and subtext yeah. in this. Yeah. Um, not always ap- applicable to your own life, but my God, you've, you know, you've seen something like, like it. Moments like yeah. This. yeah. You know, it's just, it's just so painful. Um, and then that last line, you know, all of that. And then the, the father pulls out a check. Yeah. I had a dad like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what I love is for me, like, you know, there's a narrative accessibility to all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of, you pretty much always know where you begin. Um, you, and she, she, she manages to make it, it's so accessible. Like there's no, it's not like crazy vocabulary. Mm-hmm. It's not like weird imagery or references to like obscure things. It's all pretty straightforward and accessible and you, you, you get the narrative, but it still takes you somewhere you really don't expect. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, I kept thinking like, like in, a, in, in, a, in some ways, it's like the, the, the collection is like a long run on sentence, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody is, keeps keeps talking and keeps talking. And then you find yourself in a weird place that you were like, how did we get there? And it's like that shock is she usually actually does it for, for comedy's sake. It's actually yeah. kind of funny. There are funny there's books, like this yeah. there's this really dark, absurdist surreality to the whole book where it'll be like, you know, she'll start with, you know, an image of her dad jumping off of a. A parking lot, uh, the roof of a parking lot, which is, you know, like, oh my God. And it's this clear narrative sort of horrifying thing. But then it'll sort of whine to like the ocean or, you know, a deer in a field or whatever. And you're like, oh my God, what, where, why are we here? Where did, what, we started somewhere else. And I think that like jarring, like finding yourself constantly like in a new space mentally um, is so effective. Like mm-hmm. it really works for me. Um, and like I said, it's not hard to get there. Like it's an easy read. You know, you just you just have to like sort of keep reminding yourself, like, oh, where did this poem start? And like, why are we here suddenly? Um, I love it. I, I think it's really brilliant. Another poem I thought used humor in a, a really efficient way was the. This is towards the beginning. The bodies about the bodies yeah. in the documentaries. Yeah. Um, it's because it starts out kind of funny. Um, and then it gets really, really dark and personal in the middle. And then it, it comes right back out. So I'll just read a little piece of this. So the bodies. The bodies on the battlefield in the documentary aren't really dead. Of course, they position themselves for sunrise. I'm told the bodies get $25 and free lunch. The bodies are trying to make it in Hollywood or just anywhere. Um, and then it gets to back to her father. Um, I was six when the body forever jumped from a bridge, 30 when the body tried again and again to fly from the top of a parking garage. The bodies make a pattern of loss they can't see or stop. (laughs) 
Doctor's coming in. Um, After the movie shoot, the bodies pick themselves up and wash off their wounds. The bodies take a sandwich. Then it's the easiest thing. The bodies just get in their cars and drive home. Mm -hmm. Um, Great poem. So much. That's like imagery that will change me forever. Or I'll remember Mm -hmm. it every single Mm -hmm. time I see extras. Um, And it also also sets up the use of bodies in this collection is really mm-hmm. interesting because mm-hmm. she she talks about her father's body you know in the in the opening and then she talks about that poem obviously sets up the whole idea of bodies and dead bodies whether they're real dead bodies or fake dead bodies or but then also she keeps it feels to me like she keeps coming back to the sort of um like using the word body over and over again she keeps her like reminding us of the corporeality of our existence right that like because you know like there's a tension there like you keep she keeps sort of like almost forgetting that she has a body or that there is body and i feel that way oftentimes you know like that most of my existence these days is in a sort of mental space or an online space or a social space um and and you have to be reminded, like, no, 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 it, there's a body somewhere, and that body is you, or that body is your father, or, and it, it's a really weird thing that she keeps doing, mm-hmm. and every time it pops into a poem, I was like, right, right, like, there's a tension there between thought and body, um, mm-hmm. Or, or existence, or identity, and body itself, and it's, it's jarring every time it comes in. But then you juxtapose that with... Um... So there's the reality of a body doing something, the reality of violence done to a body or uh, violence you do to yourself. And then there's the notion of violence and that has a larger social impact than someone jumping off of a bridge. So for instance, in my favorite poem that's ever been written in history, uh, which is in this book, The Workshop. Yes, I knew you would love this one. It's so good. Uh, so let me, <clears throat> this is a little long, I'll read it and then, Uh, We can talk about it. One student writes an intricate poem using a spider web as metaphor for a failed romantic relationship. Another writes a political manifesto with line breaks. Three write autobiographical narratives about childhood traumas. I am also a student, but when I turn in my imagined historical encounter between Clara Barton and Florence Nightingale, the other students look at me and say, write what you know. (laughs) Next week, I turn in a poem about a poet who is tired of other poets' lousy personal narratives. So she brings in a gun and she shoots all the poems in the chest before taking the life of her own poem. The professor calls campus security. At the station, the police officer asks me questions about my family and emotional state. This isn't about me, I say. This is a failure of imagination. We take this kind of thing very seriously, he says. It isn't a joke. His office is full of the usual detritus, framed certificates of completion and honor, the college calendar, an inspirational photo of skydivers. On his desk, there is a picture of his wife and two young children. He sees me looking at it and turns it away. So it's more... It's such a good... It's, so, it's a great poem. <laughs> but it's also the threat of someone shooting a poem yes. in, a, in a piece. Right is enough to get you to go to the cops. All the other stuff that happens in life, all the pain and the suffering, and the cops never show up. You know, like, or or your friends don't want to talk to you about it, or no one wants to talk to you about it. But you put it in narrative, and all of a sudden, it's real. Right. But also, I've been in that class. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we yeah, all no, have. There, there's so much tension between like ideas and reality, right? Like this, this like, is it dangerous to to shoot a palm or to kill a palm? Right. And then it's like, well, yeah, it's kind of it's violent and it's awful and it would be weird, but you know. And then I just love that the cop has all these photos too to inspire him, mm-hmm. or photos, you know. And are they real? Is that you know what what land of reality are we living in? Um, I love the one right before that because it. Like the workshop too. There's something that reminded me of like there's there's like an absurdist Shel Silversteiny kind of mm-hmm. humor mm-hmm. where it's like she takes an idea and then like carries it into this extreme. I'll just read unspoken bond. He gave me his grandmother's emerald engagement earrings and said, "Don't tell my mother." I gave him my grandfather's ancient Roman coin and said, "Don't tell my father." Then he gave me his father's war medal, and I gave him my mother's Olympic trials trophy, and he gave me his mother's Chanel 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 yeah. Chanel suit, and I gave him my father's gold cufflinks, and then we each stole cash from our parents and threw it at each other in handfuls like leaves, and greedily picked it all up and laughed and threw it again, this time with feeling, and we kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed like that forever. It was like, oh, it's such a it's like such a oh, it's like a silly little extended metaphor, but then it just reaches this. It's like yeah, that's, that is kind of what it feels like sometimes. It also reaches like a dark place, you know. It's a dark place, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I love when she does just like like one little idea, like shooting a poem, you know, and mm-hmm. takes it and it spins it into a little story that is really dark and interesting and to me like meaningful. I'll think about that forever. Yeah, and she does weird things with form. Um, Twinfold is a poem that's told oh, yeah. in um, in two columns, and it works yeah. if you read it either across or down. Yeah. <laughs> um, really either way, it, yeah, I don't know how she did it. I honestly, like, when I saw, first saw this poem, I was like, nope, I don't even want to read it. I hate poems that look like this, I have to say. <laughs> like, when I enc- – no, seriously, when I mean, I just being honest, like, when I encounter something that's on the page, like a formal mm-hmm. – like, when it looks – I just get overwhelmed. I tend to want to tap out. I'm like, no, right. no, no, I'm not going to. But this one really worked. I mean, it actually was was fine once you get. But I just, I have an immediate reaction when I see something so structured on the page. And, you know, this formal way, I just immediately tune out. So you know what's I'm fu- glad I, You know what's funny, though, writer, is you've spent your entire career working in a form that requires exact yeah uh format mm-hmm. i know, I know. <laughs> you know it's so strange and i, I you know as a writer i find screenwriting harder because of that very thing like working within a system a structure right. um i find that harder than than writing regular narrative i couldn't write a poem like this i, I number one i'm not great at counting so if there's a syllable thing involved i'm really fucked yeah <laughs> No, it's, you know, it's just a matter of like, often it's like when you get intimidated by the look of a poem, if you just read it aloud in your head or, you know, either literally read it aloud or in your head, just take the time, then the spacing usually makes sense. You know, if she does at least, I mean, sometimes with bad poetry, it doesn't, but when it's good, the, the formal structure, you know, the on the page look actually does work. You know, in her case, it totally works. Um, because she has these weird spacing sometimes, but even like I was listening to Julia read it, she was taking a little bit like half a breath between the longer spaces and it worked like it's, mm. it helps the rhythm. So if it's there for a good reason, it's there. But I just often find that people try and do things formally. Poets try and do things formally that I just don't give a crap. Like it doesn't help the poem, you know, mm-hmm. it's just sort of like show offy or, 
or you know i also just get scared by density on a page with poetry yeah like if it's just if there's too many words um i just start to feel like i'm going to be doing homework which you know <laughs> poetry should be effortless i you know i'm one of those people i believe poetry should be effortless like that's kind of the point is that it has a it has a, an oral quality that 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 you're 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 not just reading prose you're reading something that sort of hopefully is achieving a musicality or like reaching for a musicality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that, you know, for, that's my prejudice. Like that, there's a whole, you know, a whole bunch of schools of poetry that are not that, that are just, you know, dense and formally inventive and not supposed to be read aloud. But I don't really like that, that style well, at all. Like, I, f- I like this. Cause I also don't naturally gravitate towards different styles as you're describing but i do think these poems spacing really really matters i i don't know if you guys even noticed this but some of these poems are single spaced and some are like one and a half spaced and Mm -hmm. some are double spaced Mm -hmm. i mean all of that like this the white space is kind of breathing through the words in different ways and i also noticed that in the arena poems i don't know if this is intentional but i'm sure i'm not the first person to notice this the spaces are organized like steps in a literal stadium so you can sort of walk up the aisles of the poem so to speak Um, and that only occurs in the arena poems so it's not like precise like it's it's not like cutesy but if especially the last one the arena empties and that's the one where it's describing people like filing out um it was really noticeable to me oh yeah um that's something you're right so yeah there's i would be curious to know yeah i i'm i like all the spacing and formatting stuff but i kind of don't know what to make of it or how to discuss it i'm just kind of like i know that this matters i know that it has some kind of importance to the work but it feels like we're crossing into a visual art situation um right and it's a little out of our zone. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We the next time we have um, a poet on the show, which I don't know if we ever have, we should ask that poet, like, what's mm-hmm. up with the spacing? Yeah. Um, like when when Brie Rolf's book comes out this summer, we should have yeah, her on the show, Brie. And, she, and Brie can explain to us how spacing works. <laughs> I think. I mean, per, I, my feeling is that it works best when it's more of an instinctual thing than a you know, conscious, uh, artistic effort. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think for, I mean, I, I don't know, like, you know, I haven't written poetry for 15 years or whatever, but like, I remember it was always just like, you know, no, it's just, I'm hearing it in my head or looking at it on the page. And I just want it to like come across this way. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, and that I, and I feel like poems fail when, when poets really try and like, Oh, you know, really consciously build it based on the way it looks on the page. But that's just my personal taste. You know, I think there are maybe maybe people out there who love reading something that's like creating an image on the page. And then that is more important than the way it sounds. But like to me, poetry is always um, to be read aloud or to be heard. So that's, you know, where I'm coming from. And I think and I think therefore the spacing is just much more sort of a, you know, because you do have if you've ever tried to write out song lyrics. Um, it's an interesting process. Uh, I, I did for poetry classes in high school when I claimed "Slave to Love" by Brian Ferry was, your, was, your, was yeah. the original composition of mine. Well, it's really—I I mean, I just know that, like, you know, all you know, all my life, like, I'm such a lyrics 
fanatic and like if i would want to share lyrics with somebody or write it in a card or write it mm-hmm. in my journal or whatever i remember having that weird moment where you're trying to write it as you hear it when you hear the song mm-hmm. and i feel like that's kind of what poetry is it's like you know it's a very similar process of like but it you know and, and obviously lyrics aren't made to be read like that way they're 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 made to be sung and heard but um but in trying to translate lyrics to to share them with somebody you often want to put like weird space break you know you right. want to find line breaks you want to you want to have pauses at least you know you can't like write out a word like you know add a bunch of eyes to indicate that you know the word little was sung for a whole you know a series of notes no like you just have to like try and write the word as it actually is but then find a rhythm on the page that somehow it, it reflects the way that you're receiving it from the song i think writing poetry is, you know finding the spacing on the page with poems is kind of like that you know it's interesting you bring that up because i i have a, a fondness for seeing like an artist's original lyrics that they wrote when they were coming up with the song and seeing mm-hmm. the scratch outs and stuff. Um, and so I'll, I'll seek that sort of stuff out. And I, I am always surprised like, oh, they're putting the emphasis here when I think right. the emphasis is there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the emphasis. The emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, <laughs> and then, but they're also imagining it as a performance and not as, a, as right. just a, a reading thing. But for poetry, I I read it far more than I than I hear it because I don't like going to readings, um, as you know. Um, and you know what I, I find, and this book I think is a good example of it is, I, I shouldn't read books of poetry by sitting down and reading the book of poetry. I should read it in fits and starts, because when you sit down and read, you know, this is this book is seventy five pages long or something. You can read this whole book of poetry in forty five minutes. And you you lose some of the power of it. I think if I read each poem individually to a day or something like that, that the the impact of Lauren Shapiro's work would be more profound on me than reading one thing that that left me feeling kind of depressed. You know? Yeah, um, I f- agree. You have to let them stick and then sort of float in your head like a song that just played. Yeah, you know, and carry it through your day to really understand them. I don't know if I agree, guys. I mean, I, I think, but sometimes that I, that's totally the case. But this one, like, I feel like this one is like a nice, I, I think I read it over three days in like, so three sittings. And I, I like, I kind of want to reread it again in one sitting now because it's almost like a good album. Like it has its own logic mm-hmm. and it has its recurring words and themes and like the swirl, like her particular swirl of um, images and uh, emotions. I mean, yeah, it's disturbing, but it, it's, it has its own sort of like, um, there's like a key to it. You know, there's a way that it kind of unlocks by the end. And I actually think the beginning of the, the collection is, is weaker than the end. Um, and I think that that's intentional because it's so weird when you first start it, you're like, I don't, where are we? And then by the end, it's less weird because you've read all the way through it. And so like, now I feel like, like even just listening to you guys read some of the stuff that I read, you know, three or four days ago, I'm like, oh, now I want to go back because they kind of mean more now that I've made it to the end of the collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, this is more like a like a really cool album to go back and reread or mm. and, and reread it in one sitting. Um, yeah, I, I really like this. Um, I, I want to also just point out that she does this thing with, with narrative poetry, like the workshop poem that I read, that I'm fascinated by. Like, 
I don't know what the difference is anymore between a poem and a flash fiction or flash nonfiction pieces. Yeah. You know, the author says it's one or the other. Yeah, like <laughs> if you put line breaks in it, it, it would just be a normal poem. But it's just she's writing short little paragraphs and it's poetry. But like the, there's a there's a essay essentially at the beginning of the book called Presentation, and it's all is it one sentence? No, there's there's sentences all the way through it. But I mean, it's just it's just a it's just a flash piece, and maybe genre doesn't matter anymore. You know, maybe you put stuff in a book and it is what it is. Um, and, you know, poetry has always existed as a freeform expression. There are, of course, the rules for the individual kinds of things. But the great thing about poetry is you can go in and you can make your own shit and no one's going to complain about it except for the formalists. Um, but, like, how do you decide that workshop is a poem and not flash fiction or flash nonfiction or something? Or how do you, um, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of these really short little paragraph poems mm -hmm. in here. Um, but like, how do you decide? And does it matter? Does it matter to you guys if it's a poem or not? No. I think. No, I, I, it's just whether, what the author calls it. You know, if this was, if, the, if that, if that workshop was in a Lydia Davis collection mm -hmm. and she called it a flash fiction, I'd be like, great, cool flash fiction <laughs> piece. I'd like it, you know, I'd like it the same. I right. Guess. It doesn't, it doesn't change it one way or the other, I guess. I like um, the way that poetry gets out of the true versus not true debate. We can accept yeah. that it's both mm -hmm. um, or neither or whatever. Um, so I like it as a poem. You know, I don't like if it was fiction, of course, we'd be like, ooh, did this really happen? Is this based in reality? And if it was nonfiction, <laughs> we'd be like, what a freaking liar. You can't shoot a poem in the chest. Uh <laughs> but what's so cool about, like, what's so, okay, so there's things we can agree about. Like, none of us know anything about Lauren Shapiro no. other than the fact that she writes poetry and teaches it at a university. And yet, by the end of this poem, we know, or the end of this book, we know pretty clearly so many truths about this person without knowing any of the actual facts, right? Like, we know there's suicide in her family or suicide attempts her father struggled with mental health she's struggled with with some mental health issues we know that she has a child uh, that she takes to kindergarten we know that she teaches or has been in workshops like there's all these sort of things that we know and we know intimately mm -hmm. like we can tell you how she feels about these things how she struggled with these things but we didn't we don't actually need to know any of the facts um, right that is so cool to me, you know, like that's, and that's something only poetry can do. Cause if this were a nonfiction series of essays, we'd probably be a little dissatisfied, but because it's poetry, she's sort of proclaiming that we're going to, we're going to seek an intimacy and an understanding that goes beyond knowing right. the facts of each other's lives right. or beyond knowing like how old her kid is and whether she grew up in this state or this, you know, like we mm. don't need to know all that. Well, and it's not um, even, it's not even that we know the facts of her life is that we understand the logic of her existence, you know? Right. Right. And so you, that's the difference between being satisfied in a memoir or being dissatisfied with the facts that are shown here. Like, yeah. I, I want to know more about the dead father or the, the mm -hmm. father's suicide attempts and all that. Um, but that's not what this book is about. This is a book no. about, you know, her living in a perpetual cycle of getting that first phone call or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and, and I think that is the liberty that, that you get with writing about these things as poetry is that as long as we come away with an understanding of another human being's logic and thought process, I think we feel, um, we feel satisfied. We don't need story. 
we need mm-hmm. uh, um, emotional bridges to another human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I feel profoundly connected to her. You know, we should call her. We should. <laughs> hey, Lauren, this is but see, maybe, Todd. Maybe we should never actually meet our favorite poets, right? Oh, no, never. Because <laughs> no. they probably would probably, you know, maybe bore us to tears at a dinner party or. Never, like, never meet your heroes. Is, never. Uh, no. <laughs> Except for you, Lauren, definitely listening. I'm sure you're awesome. I mean, yeah. look, the, two things are going to happen if, if you really admire someone. They're going to disappoint you or you're going to feel like you didn't get enough of them. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's almost no in between, right? Hmm. Oh God. Well, I don't know. That's not, that's not entirely true. I've had good experiences with some heroes that I've met, but only when I got older and wasn't so fucking weird. <laughs> How do you think people feel when they meet you, Todd? You know, it's a funny thing that you should ask that. Um, I was saying this to a friend of mine the other day about, I get a lot of overly personal, overly familiar emails. Oh, I was saying this to Ivy Pakoda, actually, about like, I get a lot of overly familiar emails from people where it's not just that they like my book, they want me in their life. Mm. And I find that um, weird and a little upsetting. And so it's exactly what we're describing. I know it's it's actually a tribute to your work. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's it's that that's that they not only identify with, um, you know, or they didn't not only enjoyed the work, but they identify with the sensibility and the thought behind it and that that draws them to you as a person, too. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, well, look. um, no one is Americans, especially, are not great with boundaries. No, <laughs> and so you know, like, I'm always, is... I'm always very nice about that. Like, it's a lot of, oh, I read your book. I'm going to be driving through the area. I'd love to take you to coffee. I'm just like, mm. I have a great coffee machine at home, so right. that's a no. But I mean, Ryder, you, you experienced that your moment. entire goddamn yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah, and and that I guess that's what's funny to me is like. I would feel like, you know, I like I am famous because I performed a character like I was consciously being somebody that's not me, but because I was using me, (laughs) my body, it's like inseparable for people. And like it, I know that it's just so weird for them when they meet me in person because it's like, oh, you you have the same voice and the same face and you're the (laughs) older version of my the person I spent every Friday night with. So you must be my friend. And it's right. like, no, I'm so not that person. Yeah. Uh, so, so in a weird, weird way, I would feel more, you know, I feel more connected when people like my writing or mm-hmm. have seen a film that I've made that I am not in. Mm-hmm. And when they respond to that, that is more to me closer to the, the real me. Mm-hmm. So like, if I got letters like you're getting taught, I would be like, yeah, they, it worked. Yeah. Like something got across yeah. that I was I, in control I of. I feel it. good like, about really, that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, feeling like I get very uncomfortable with, with actor fame because I'm just always, I feel like I'm always disappointing them that I'm not Sean. Right. You know? <laughs> like, and it's like, sorry, I, I don't know what version of me you wanted, but I'm not that guy. So well, it's like, um, it's just a weird thing. I, it's you know. like, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember their names. Our, our friends from the soap opera. Um, you're, oh, Natalie and Travis. Yeah, Natalie yeah. and Travis, and they were talking about like when they were on the soap opera, and they'd be walking down the street, and people would be fucking pissed at them. Yeah, <laughs> right? because they cheated on their partners. Right. Like, or, how yeah, dare you? <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that's intense, man. That's weird, man. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. That's a yeah. difficult thing. Hey, um, we're almost done talking about this, but I want to highlight something because Julia has failed to do so. Uh, Julia, has oh. your theater reopened? <laughs> My theater will be reopening very soon. 
Yay. Is there currently a fundraising campaign to assist your theater? Oh, yes. This is too nice of you. I consider this a local fundraiser, but, <laughs> I mean, if literary disco fans want to chip in, maybe someday we could do some kind of event there. I think um, we could. Yes. Oh, my God. A live literary disco at your that theater. That would be yes. so Oh, amazing. that would be the best. Ryder has been there. He signed the wall way back yep. when. Um, but, yeah, we have a Kickstarter campaign just to... Um, I don't know, survive the next few months. Like, I think what people need to understand about this reopening time is if you're a pure consumer, you're like, yay, reopening, check, everything's fine. But if you're coming back to paying full rent and feeding people and installing new filters and stuff, you know, it's actually going to be worse than just being closed in terms of uncertainty. So mm. we are trying to raise just a about twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars, five to a hundred dollars at a time. So, look up GoFundMe and then look up CT Improv, and we'll pop right up. And if you can't, if you want to donate but you can't find it, just send me a message, and I will surely give you a link to send me money. <laughs> I thought um, you were going to say, just call CT. me, and I'll give you we my got, home address. Spell out CT. It's S E A T E. That's right. Please, yeah. if you're ever going to start a tiny business, don't make it a pun because you're always going to be spelling the name. <laughs> it's so in my true. top five life regrets. Um, oh my was God. agreeing to that, yeah. but you uh, know, it's it's great, and I'm so happy to be reopening. It is so so exciting and i truly underestimated how much people want us to reopen um people are pretty much like banging down the doors well i I saw they did a nice uh story in the local media about (laughs) um about your return yeah the the hartford current which is the nation's oldest newspaper so like a pretty prestigious newspaper called me and i thought it was going to be a piece about like you know all the theaters but the whole entire article is just me mouthing off. Um, <laughs> so, now let me yeah, talk to you about saddle it. shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing about horse girl books. Oh, I, it's pretty close to that. Trust me. So uh, episode four of Mare of Town. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but yeah, it'll be great. And Todd, I thought you were going to mention that I'm going to be teaching at your residency, which is that also is, happening. That is also true. I have that a busy month. True. Yes, you do. You have a very busy month. Um, but, you know, I think it's important that um, the folks know that when we're pimping our, our real lives, um, <laughs> that these are the things that we do for our livings. You know, we talk a lot about my books and about writers' projects. And writers got a cool project to be able to tell us about next episode, Ooh, yeah. I, I hope, um, that uh, Julia and I got to see today. Um but, you know, what you're doing also, Julia, is such a huge part of the community that you live in. And um, I hope people, if they have five bucks that they want to donate, that five bucks is going to go towards helping bring arts and culture back to Hartford when the doors open yeah. again. Yeah. And I'll just say one more thing, like find the version of this where you live. A lot of theaters have closed and will close. And there is truly no substitute. Like, do you yeah. guys want more Zoom theater? I know you fucking no. don't. I, know I don't do anything on Zoom anymore, ever. <laughs> no. I mean, other than this. Zoom theater was like super fun and cool for like the first month of oh, pandemic. Yeah, and wasn't. then it was like just a, just a sad, <laughs> sad reminder of how long it's been. Yeah. You know? So if you want to be in a room with people laughing, um, give money to that place, even if it's just buying tickets. Um, the only thing that Zoom, I think the way that Zoom is going to stay in our lives is 
in uh, people aren't going to have to show up in studios to appear in the local news anymore. <laughs> like that's yeah. that's basically well, actually, it. you know, in terms of of the entertainment industry, like uh, I don't think people will audition in person anymore. Uh, it seems like the entire yeah. acting, like everybody, at least the first call, mm. it's no longer going to, you're no longer going to have to schlep around That's great. Hollywood. It's great. Like it's going to change, you know, like my wife's life. Like she's been able to just audition on camera. She's, she's booked jobs during the pandemic just off, you know, us, me holding the camera in our living room. It's like, why did we ever do this any yeah. other way? Like, and so. It would seem to me having never had to cast anybody that like seeing them actually on camera versus in front of you would give you a better notion of how that person would be. Yeah, it depends. You know, it depends on the situation, but certainly the first read, like, because the reality is, you know, you're casting based on so many considerations, like how old does somebody fit in with the rest of the cast, whether, right. you know, their ethnicity is correct for how it fits in with the rest of the cast or the storyline, how, you know, there's so many factors that you can't know until you see a person and see them do it. And like, so that's the first call for, for most casting sessions is just, it's a, just, it's a toss up, you know, it's, it's a waste of a lot of people's time. If you could just do it from your home, a lot of those decisions can be made and it has nothing to do with whether you're a good or bad actor. It's just those decisions like to eliminate the people that are not right for the part. And then the second round, I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm old school. Like I, you know, I, I was auditioning back before, you know, there were even cameras. I didn't have, you know, like the idea of like having, I mean, you know, it's truly like the idea of having a camera in the audition room when I was auditioning as a kid was so rare. It was mm. like, no, like, you know, you, you just met in person and did an audition and then you went on how you got along with the director and, and whatnot. So I still kind of believe in like, you know, being able to take direction and listen to each other and have a conversation and become, you know, partners and making something. But, you know, that doesn't have to happen until the second or third callback Um, when it really when you actually have a chance at the job the sort of like you know just casting call random ugh no would you call it an arena by chance wow (laughs) I would I would Estelle yeah grabs it turns it (laughs) comes to a full circle well let's say it was a lot better than your introductory segue Todd (laughs) (laughs) which was bad which was nothing (laughs) Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks.